National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. The Synod on Synodality concluded its preparatory phase this week with the release of the planning document that will be a guide for the October Synod gathering at the Vatican. The document lays out what promises to be a very wide-ranging discussion on Pope Francis's vision of a more inclusive, decentralized, and namely a listening church. Register senior editor Jonathan Liedel joins us with analysis on what is in the document. Then we hear from a young woman who converted from Judaism, then to Protestantism, then to Catholicism, and is now witnessing to others about the power of the Eucharist. Joanna Wisher shares her story. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. So most of of you know the Catholic Church has been in a multi-year synodal process called the Synod on Synodality. Uh, It has included listening sessions um, around the world at the diocesan level, national level, continental level, and now it's moving to the global level in October. And with the release of this Instrumentum Laboris, as it is called in Latin, which means a working document, uh, we now have a guide, if you will, for what is going to happen in October. Uh, joining us today to talk about this is Jonathan Liedel, Senior Editor for The Register. Uh, Jonathan, welcome. Thanks, Jeanette. Good to be with you. So, Jonathan, this is a 50-page long document in English. Um, it's written in a style that's really quite different from other instrumentum laboris documents, working documents for other synods. Let's just start with that. How is this um, style different from other documents? Yeah, I think other instrumentum laboris sees, if, if that's the plural of it, uh, you know, as you said, the kind of working document for a synod of bishops. Oftentimes, uh, they're they're already put together um, as sort of uh, the pretext, right, for for what might come out of the synod. They consult with uh, bishops around the world. They get feedback, and they kind of lay out, okay, here's what we seem to be hearing. Let's have a discussion about that, and let's move forward. I think you know this synod of bishops, right, which, as you've pointed out, is part of this multi-year, multi-stage synod on synodality. It's a little different. And so the Instrumentum Laboris um, is also different. Um, it really has a, the first half of the document is about sort of detailing where we have been, right? What what has occurred, um, you know, from the diocesan stages to the continental stages, and now coming to this point in October, 2023, what have we learned or what has emerged or what seems to be true um, about a synodal church. So it provides some some descriptions um, of, of what synodal, synodality um, ought to look like in the church and how we can go about um, discerning that and applying it. And then the other second half of the document is very practical. Um, it's, it's a pretty lengthy set of, of questions or worksheets um, that will be taken up by the participants in uh, the Synod of Bishops coming up in October, um, really centered around the three themes um, that have been core, at the core of of the Synod on Synodality. So communion, responsibility, and participation. So that's that's what the document contains. How will it be used? Uh, Well, I think, first of all, it's meant to get everyone on the same page, right? There's been a lot said in the past couple of years as part of this process. 
So it's meant to be a kind of synthesis of that. Um, it doesn't say you shouldn't go back and read other things. It definitely encourages you to read um, the, the church's teaching on, on relevant uh, aspects of this, everything from Lumen Gentium to the International Theological Commission's teaching on the census fidei. Um, but this is kind of like the starting point. You can read this uh, and get caught up to speed. Um, and then, of course, the worksheets will be used um, in small groups or small circles that'll be part of the Synod of Bishops. So alternating between different groups, getting together and, and you know, talking and sharing their insights, their experience before they come together for big, bigger plenary assemblies. Um, and of course, it should be mentioned that the October 2023 Synod of Bishops is not the end of right. this process. Uh, in 2024, uh, there will be another synod of bishops related related to this theme. So this uh, the document and then the gathering in October is is kind of meant to set the stage for that in 2024, where a, a final document uh, will be produced um, right. uh, from that synod. Right. I mean, it is a couple things to mention. You said you can kind of read this and get caught up with where things are. Yes, you can, but it's mostly a reflection of what the people who were consulted um, in mm -hmm. the other synods, what they expressed were needs of the church. Um, and so it's not like a, a document with teaching. <laughs> it's more of a document that raises uh, questions that, that the church, the people of the church, it talks a lot about the people of God, believe mm -hmm. should be uh, examined and should be explored more and and hopefully answered but it makes a point it's not it says it's not a um, a magisterial document it's not something that proposes <laughs> um, it, to resolve questions but really to be used for greater discernment and and discussion it goes on and on about how mm -hmm. discussions should take place so it's a very different document I would reiterate than what we've seen in the past um, and as you said this is it, it's explicit that this next, Synod gathering in October is not intended to resolve the questions that are asked. They're actually going to um, uh, maybe narrow them down to what kind of further study is needed. And mm -hmm. next October in 2024 mm -hmm. is when those uh, synod uh, assembly, uh, I guess, synod participants will be proposing something to the Holy Father, which he can then either affirm and make his own uh, in a document or we don't know what, right? It's yeah. just all been so different and he'll be full of surprises. But let's talk about some of the themes, Jonathan, that have emerged in this. Some make um, uh, some people very uncomfortable. Others are um, have naturally been a part of the process all along uh, these few years. So what are some of the themes that emerge here? Yeah, I think in the in the first place, um, you're right. It's not a magisterial document, but it is attempting to uh, define or articulate or put forward a vision of what synodality looks like in the church. So, of course, mm -hmm. uh, synodality means walking together. So, th the idea behind this all is how can the church, right, as one body mm -hmm. with different members, how can we better uh, cooperate? How can we better harmonize, uh, you know, to achieve communion, mission, and participation? So that's the underscoring of it. So, you know, it, it talks about 
some of these insights uh, kind of emerging from these previous discussions, right? Like we've discovered what synodality is as we've done it, um, which mm. is, you know, an interesting way of of putting things. Um, but yeah, I think a couple things that it underscores, one, the the primacy of, uh, of baptism, right? The, the fact that by being baptized, we're Catholic, we're part of the body, uh, and so we need to be involved somehow. Uh, and then it emphasizes listening, emphasizes encounter and dialogue, and emphasizes, um, yeah, being a church that goes out, that is outward oriented uh, and welcomes others. Um, and just to kind of touch on a lot of that, you know, my reading of it, I think there's so much uh, concern often about some of these themes because they seem to be said in, in ambiguous ways, or they're not grounded in either um, church teaching or aren't clear on how this listening, how this encounter and how this going out and uh, making people feel welcome. At one point it says that's the church's mission is to make people feel welcome, which if you cherry pick that, that can, that's really okay to make people feel welcome. Well, what if someone really disagrees with like a central claim of a belief, a truth, right? Like if a Muslim person uh, doesn't feel welcome because we believe in a Trinitarian God, what do you, what do you do about that? Right. Or someone rejects the church's teaching on sexuality. And you know, there are paragraphs, though, that I think um, that clarify, for instance, that truth and love can never be separated and that to authentically welcome someone uh, involves the church's teaching. I just think they're not the emphasis of the document. Right. Right. And I think that and there's a whole other separate conversation we could have about the difference between these documents and the and the way people in the media and even in synod leadership talk about them. Right. Which I think is a the, maybe a major source of confusion or concern that that people have but but there they are in the point being is that i think there's a way of of reading this and understanding what it's proposing in terms of synodality in a way that doesn't need to be divorced from the truth that doesn't need to be divorced um from church teaching the second half of the document oh go ahead Jeanette, if you i was to just going to agree with that you know the you know there are questions in here that when you read it you're going to you know people go oh my goodness haven't we been through this before one of them talks about um, there are calls for the question of women's inclusion in the diaconate to be considered. Is it possible mm -hmm. to envision this in and in what way? Well, mm -hmm. you know, you could say we've been there. You know, the yep. church has been doing this. Why are we asking the question again? Or you could ask the same thing. Um, one question goes into Amoris Laetitia and making people who have um, uh, remarried and divorcees or people in polygamous marriages or LGBTQ plus people feel more welcomed. Is there a way to do this? Those kind of questions, you know, people just get irritated that they're even being asked. But the attempt mm -hmm. here is to draw... Um, people into discussion and so that when they, they are answered, there is a, a grounds for um, perhaps understanding. Now, how do you do such a process? That's the, the practical uh, trouble um, with a process like this. Yeah. And, and holding it at the global level too, I think is, it's just so unwieldy. And as you pointed out, you know, the document constantly uh, talks about, you know, we consulted the people of God, but as a lot of people will point out, the participation rate, you know, among the Catholic faithful is not that high, right? Mm -hmm. in, in a place like the U.S., I think it was between 1% and 2%. In Western Europe, it was even lower. So it, it, it seems strange then to, based upon that, um, you know, claim that that you, you ha you're hearing the Spirit of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. But I will, I think, 
something the document does point out, um, and this can sound kind of cliche, but that there is value in even the even the coming together and listening. Right, you're not going to resolve all the differences, but as as members of the church, right, you're you're sort of affirming this mutual uh, belonging, which is important. And I think, you know, we'll we'll see, you know, how the whole thing goes on the universal level. Um, I think there is truth we probably know from our own personal lives, right, or from our local parish setting, that when we we do have opportunities to exchange viewpoints, to listen to each other, uh, to be heard, um, not divorced from the church's teaching, nor from the bishop or the the parish pastor's responsibility, um, their 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 apostolic responsibility, right, to to govern and make decisions. Um, that can be a fruitful experience. It can lead to communion. Um, so I think that that's something I'd, I'd point out. But you're right. I think, you know, these the, the issues you mentioned, the sort of neuralgic ones um, related to sexuality, it, it's, you know, it seems like the church has taught about these things. The church has taught decisively about these things. And people continue, um, you, you know, some people, right, perhaps with an agenda, continue to kind of push it in spite of the church being clear about it. And I think that 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 that's obviously a place for concern. Now, the document does say, well, hey, when these things happen, it could be because the church's teaching hasn't been communicated well enough. It could be because we haven't shown people how to apply this in our own lives. Um, but then it does also leave, you know, leave open, you know, maybe it means we the circumstances have changed, right? Or right. we need to reevaluate um, things in some way. You know, it's interesting in a whole project and a document that emphasizes synodality and emphasizes listening so much. I think some of the people involved in in promoting the synod on synodality and leading it have really failed to listen to concerns of ordinary Catholics. In fact, there's some there's a line in here about, um, you know, for people who still aren't kind of on board, like they need to do basically like a synodal introspection or something right, like that. Right. right. Some of the most faithful people in the church, you know, who haven't been able to, to wrap their brains around this are the ones who might um, say, wait a minute, you're telling me to go think about it? So it, there's a lot here. And what I really want to, to conclude with is that, you know, this is a process and it's a very new process. So we're really trying to understand it and we really need to pray um, for those who are leading. So Synod leadership, um, it'll be about 370 people who are involved in the October meeting. Um, it's almost 80% will be bishops. And for the first time, you know, the rest will be lay people and, and, um, and, uh, religious. And so we really need to pray for those, those people that are yet to be announced who they are. And, uh, the Pope is selecting a good many of them. So right now we urge just prayer, um, and looking at these, um, questions and, and taking them the prayer, um, especially for the church. So, Jonathan, thank you for your reporting on this and for the conversation today. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeanette. When we come back, we'll hear from a young convert on how her love of the Eucharist grew. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. If you need your news on the go, read the register online. But if you want to take your time and savor the stories, then subscribe to the National Catholic Register's print edition. And with award-winning Catholic journalism that goes beyond what you'll find from any secular news service, you'll get the real story behind the events that unfold over the course of the year. Try the register for free today and get it delivered to your home, office, or parish. Join the Catholics who depend on the register for its faithful and courageous reporting. 
Get six issues free today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. On Corpus Christi Sunday, June 11th, Catholics in the U.S. began the second year of the Eucharistic Revival launched by the bishops in 2022. We began this year of preparation on Corpus Christi. It's a year of parish-level Uh, revival, let's say deepening our faith in Jesus, fully present in the Eucharist. And this is in preparation before next year's National Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis, Indiana. And as a part of this Eucharistic revival, the National Catholic Register is bolstering our content on the Catholic teaching on the Eucharist, but also highlighting the power of the Eucharist in individual lives. And one such example, a story of Joanna Wisher, who wrote the blog, I was Jewish, then Protestant, now Catholic, and here's why the Holy Eucharist strikes me so powerfully. The Register published that at ncregister.com on June 12th. Uh, And Joanna joins us today. Joanna Wisher was born and raised in New York City. She's a graduate from American University in uh, Washington. Uh, She served as senior policy analyst in the Trump White House in the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy. And before that, she served in the U.S. Department of State in the White House Liaison's Office, focusing on personal leadership for the agency. Joanna Wisher was fully baptized, initially baptized as a Protestant in April of 2016, but then confirmed into the Catholic Church February of last year, 2022. So I'm so pleased uh, to have you here today, Joanna. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So every year around the Feast of Corpus Christi, really right after, we ask our listeners, our readers um, at the Register, to send in uh, pictures of how they celebrated the Feast of Corpus Christi. And it, usually we get these wonderful um, examples of processions and, and, and uh, small vignettes, right, of how people celebrated the day. And for you, you were able to submit a blog about uh, your your love of the Eucharist and how powerful it has been in your own life. But but let's start with Corpus Christi. How did you celebrate this year? Well, for Corpus Christi, um, I was blessed to have my husband's parents. So my parents-in-law were in town. We went to the Basilica of St. Mary. We had a beautiful Mass, uh, and that was followed by a procession, a Eucharistic procession. And um, the processions are so new for me as a new Catholic. Um, and it strikes me every time because Jesus's real body and blood is in front of us daily, you know, if we want to go to daily mass. So it was really beautiful and wholesome. Yeah, it's, it draws you in. I mean, there's nothing like it. And even if you're not expecting to see one and there's a, there's a parish um, that is right along a service road when I pass on the uh, on a big highway near, near my house. And um, last year, I remember just being caught by surprise seeing their, you know, grandiose procession right there alongside of this major highway. And it, it, it has this extreme power, 
you know, to draw you in and to say something is different here. And I, that is one of my favorite aspects of Corpus Christi is just bringing right. the sacred right there into kind of everyday life and, and saying, stop, <laughs> Jesus is here. So it, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful time of year to reflect um, on his presence truly. I, I, I'm intrigued by your story. I'm, I'm so grateful that you can tell it here. You, as I mentioned in the headline of your of your blog, uh, you journeyed, um, it was really kind of an unusual one, from Judaism to Protestantism and now to Catholicism. How were you led through through all of this? What What is your story? Long story short, I mean, I feel like I could write a whole book about it because you <laughs> know, I wasn't raised in a super, super religious environment. I grew up in New York City. Our cities are unfortunately plagued with a lot of secularism, but I was so blessed with parents that cared about my, you know, my cultural education. I, we had family that had some involvement in helping, you know, other fellow Jews in the Holocaust. And, um, my mom never got to learn about that background. So I had a, a bat mitzvah when I was 13, which is a coming of age ceremony. Um, I learned how to read and pray in Hebrew. And I always appreciated the Jewish community's passion for philanthropy, giving back, mm-hmm. you know, feeding the homeless, uh, being generous, stewards with our money and our, you know, all the other blessings in our lives. But I was craving something more. I really appreciated the rich traditions and the history of my, of my uh, Judaism. However, I felt like I didn't have as much of a personal relationship with God as I was craving. And I was asking these questions. My dad, um, he was raised in Catholic school. Um, uh, and so he had that kind of connection and he would watch midnight mass uh, every year from St. Hmm. Patrick's Cathedral. So that was something that's very near and dear to his heart. And when I was 18 years old, I got really curious about this whole church thing. And so I asked my dad to take me to church, took me to Mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And it wasn't during Christmas. It was just a, you know, a daily Mass of some sort. And Cardinal Dolan was up there talking about Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And it struck me in a way and just, just, feeling that, okay, that kind of scandalous love that someone would care about me so much that they would die for me just to have a relationship with me and how my sins are forgiven. When we can ask, we can beg for forgiveness and he pardons them. And so I was never anti-Catholic, but I I started going to Catholic mass a little bit. And then when I moved to DC to American university, I was just surrounded in Protestant circles. What I appreciate about the Protestant faith is that they really emphasize the daily practice of reading the Bible and getting plugged into your community and you know, uh, making sure that we're all keeping each other accountable, you know, to be in the word every day. And so American University, Chi Alpha Campus Ministries, I really credit them for that. I was still craving something more. Mm -hmm. There were certain things about the history. And uh, I noticed as much as I love my Protestant brothers and sisters, um, there's so many different churches and everyone has a different take on something. And Sometimes that can be vulnerable to bending to, you know, the culture, you know, and, and so uh, I kept going to more and more traditional, you know, esque kind of churches until um, <laughs> eventually I was surrounded by a bunch of new friends in my work environment, uh, basically five Protestants that had recently converted to the Catholic Church. Wow. And so I was thinking, okay, it's not a coincidence that these people were placed into my life. So I started talking with them and they all kind of shared the same values with me and realized that their values aligned best with the Catholic church. And so then I was told by a friend to go to uh, the Catholic information center uh, and just knock on the door and tell them I wanted to learn about the Catholic church. So I met father Charles then 
Um, and he took me into his office. We started meeting every day. The biggest thing um, that initially brought me over the line is reading church history. Yeah. The Catholic Church is stemmed directly from Jesus, and I feel like that is undeniable. And as much as, you know, humans can be messy, there's sin in any human organization, but the structure of the Catholic Church that Jesus set is perfect. And we have a duty to lift that up, not break away. So that was what started it. And then when I learned about the Eucharist, how he's not just spiritually, you know, present with us every day, but in his body and blood, and we have that every day accessible to us. I just was completely sent, you know, to, right, to my absolutely. in February 2022. Sorry for the long story, but um, no, yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm going to follow that's, it that's up because it. I want to, you know, I want to emphasize. I mean, you're you're young, you're a young woman, uh, newly married, but mm-hmm. you know, graduated in 2019. That wasn't that long ago, and right. sometimes we look at. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a few a few years <laughs> older, but sometimes we look around at the world today and we're like, oh gosh, it's just going to hell. You know, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Right. And what can we do? Right. You know, um, where are young people? How how can we bring them up in the faith? And I look at a story yeah. like yours, and I am given hope because what what basically mm-hmm. was calling you was first of all relationship, and that's what exactly what Jesus wants to offer us um, through other people. Right. But also through his body and blood, as you as you so aptly said, is is present for us every day, um, and and when we find ourselves in that presence, um, it can grip us, and that's exactly what it sounds like happened to you. And I I love the fact that you want to tell that story, uh, a, a new yeah. Catholic, you know, just a year, a little more than a year in, and and you're writing for us. Um, for the register, and you're telling that story. You described um, three things uh, that were initially hurdles, but now are are the mm. pillars for your Eucharistic faith. Can you um, can mm. you sum those up here? Yeah. So first of all, um, so reasons. There's a section in the article reasons to believe Jesus. <laughs> it's just such a beautiful thing because you know in Protestant church, you know you have you have the symbolic, you know, Eucharist view, um, you know, and that's, that's beautiful in and of itself to remember Jesus' sacrifice. But the fact that um, Jesus not only wants us to remember him spiritually, but wants to humble himself every single day, that alone is so beautiful and powerful and striking um, that that's something that I, I was just, I, I was taken aback by. The second thing, there, there is biblical proof of this in John and in Exodus, you know, the, 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 I love the fact that I, I'm Jewish because I feel like the Catholic Church is the direct fulfillment of the, you know, Jewish people, the Jewish faith. Um, and so we see that present, uh, for example, in the practices of sacrificing the lamb, you know, over Passover. And, uh, you know, the families consuming the lamb and the blood protecting uh, the people from the angel of death. And so Jesus is the new sacrificial lamb. And we have him accessible. We can be with him in our own bodies, you know, when we take the Eucharist. So, um, I mean, take in, take in the Eucharist. And, and so that part, there's biblical proof. And then the, uh, the other side of it is the fact that there's something called transubstantiation. And I feel like even though I'm, I'm very swayed by the spiritual and emotional element of, of the Eucharist and the fact that Jesus came down and the whole idea surrounding it, but the fact that there is almost a scientific element to this, there's an explanation where 
there's a host. And spiritually, when a priest consecrates the bread and the wine, that God, he can alter the substance without changing its appearance. And so I feel like that explanation um, is key in understanding how God can be present with us. And I feel additionally um, that it's a grace that we can take in the body and blood um, in the appearance of wine and bread, because I don't think humans across the world, I mean, it would be kind of scary, even though there's Eucharistic miracles that can prove like, okay, the host, you know, was found bleeding and tested as actual blood, um, how we know it. I feel that it's a grace from God that we don't have to take in the appearance of flesh and blood every single time, because I feel like that could be scary, especially for new Catholics. I feel like God just makes it as easy as possible for us to understand. So that's essentially in a nutshell, um, how I wrap my head around it. Absolutely. And it, and it's really a wonderful testament for those of us who are cradle Catholics, um, to hear your story and to allow it to touch us and to, to be reminded that, um, this richness is there, like you said, in the early church fathers, um, this richness is, is here now (laughs) and, um, and we are blessed to be a part of it. And as we journey with the U S bishops and the Catholics throughout the country in this Eucharistic revival, we really should lift up this belief and, and know that others can be pulled in too. Um, and our testimony is great. And so Joanna, I just want to thank you so much, um, for your faith, sharing it with us today. You can find Joanna Wisher's work at ncregister.com. Her blog was titled, I was Jewish, then Protestant, now Catholic. Here's why the Holy Eucharist strikes me so powerfully. Remember, you can also find more news and analysis and commentary at the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. For our producer, Jeff Burson, and for myself, Jeanette DeMello, until next week, I pray God bless you.